You just preached my whole sermon there in a song. That was, that's the whole message. <laughs> it's not through our strength. It's through Christ that we prevail. It's through Christ that we conquer. We can, we can go home, but I, I, I worked on this, so I'm going to preach it. I hope it's okay with you. Uh, but that's the message of today, that uh, not by our own strength, but through Christ we prevail through Christ. Thanks, Aaron. Big day today, Aaron Duncan. His birthday is today. <laughs> Woo! Happy birthday, buddy. I'm glad you're here. It's been a wild year. It's not been a year like you expected, but uh, we're glad you're here and a part of our congregation. Thank you for another year of life, oh Lord, and thank you for sending Aaron our way as well to lead us to your throne in worship. Last week, we began our series in the book of Isaiah, got through one verse. Today, we're going to get through seven, okay? It's going to be a marathon. I hope you're ready to buckle in. I said it would be short last week, and it was 30 minutes, so uh, we'll see how we do today. There's no football game at noon today, so you should be okay. We're going to try to get it in on TV, too. I know Jeff Smart and Shelby have worked so hard to get it on the air. They wave these cards at me like, you have two minutes left, and I didn't even see it last week, so that's, that's on me. We talked about that first verse in Isaiah and how it introduces three key questions to us. What, who, and when. The what of Isaiah. What is the book of Isaiah? It's the, the prophetic vision of Isaiah. And it's a collection. It's not the visions. It's all the, the, the vision that Isaiah received throughout a lifetime of prophetic work. And what does that mean? It means that it's, it cuts through the, the fog and the noise of this world to lift us up and to show us reality as God sets it. Is there noise and fog in our world today? Yes. Do you need to, to see clearly who the Lord is and what's going on in our world? Yes. Will Isaiah help us do that? Absolutely, if we will let him do that. It's a glimpse into things as they actually are according to God. We also saw in the who section that Isaiah's very name is a testament to God's grace. The name Isaiah means the Lord saves. Everything else that we turn to for salvation will ultimately let us down. Our friends, our family, our job, our identity. But we can bank on this fact. The Lord saves. Salvation must necessarily come from beyond ourselves. Rescue can only come from a place outside of this world. Only the Lord can save. We also looked at to whom Isaiah was speaking. He was speaking to the people in Judah, in the promised land, in Jerusalem, God's chosen people, the covenant people of God. Why is that relevant for us? Well, if you're a Christian here today, you are part of the new covenant people of God. The message of Isaiah is for those people who are called by God and set apart according to his purpose. So the book of Isaiah has particular relevance for us as God's people. Finally, we looked at the win of Isaiah. It was an unprecedented time. How many times have you heard that phrase over the last year? It was a wild time when the Assyrian threat in the east was growing and the shadow loomed over God's people and a major crisis was impending on the land. How would they respond? Would they turn to the Lord or would they look to other things to save them? It's incredibly relevant, isn't it? 
So today we're going to dive into the text of chapter 1. So let's read our text together. Why don't we stand, if you're able to, in honor of God's word as I read Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 through 9. Hear now the word of the Lord. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. Not a particularly happy text, and let me just give you a disclaimer. Until about October, a lot of these texts are not going to be particularly happy texts, okay? But there is good news, and we're going to get there eventually. Just hang on, okay? You know, I've read a lot this week about how various conspiracy theories have caused a lot of damage to our country. It's heartbreaking to read stories of how families have even been torn apart by some family members who uh, have gone down these, these rabbit holes of these conspiracy theories and other family members who won't descend into the madness with their other family. It's heartbreaking to see how these theories have caused so much harm. And most of them start with some half-truths or some projections onto what people think might be going on. But the crazy thing is how they evolve into these huge lies, only then to be presented as truth. And let's be clear, there are lies on both sides of the political spectrum, okay? There are lies in our society all over. And they can do a lot of damage. My neighbor keeps chickens. Uh, I love it because we get eggs every now and then. He keeps bees too. He's got a great garden. We get produce from him sometimes. Kind of like Travis up there. You're going to get bees soon, I bet you. Uh, it's a, a fun neighbor to have. And I help him every now and then move his chicken coop to avoid sickness and, and sanitation. So a couple days ago, I was out there helping him move his chicken coop. And we were talking about the current events in our society. And he said something about the lies of, of the, the, the media and the lies that are being propagated out there through different social media groups and different um, conspiracy theories. And he said, I'm so sick of the lies. And he said, 
when people believe lies, bad things happen. And he's, he's not a believer. And I said, that's right, man. When, when people believe lies, bad things happen. That sounds like preschool, like <laughs> that you would teach a kid, right? But we need to hear that again today. When people believe lies, bad things happen. Destruction comes. I'm, I've said it before and I'll say it again. We're much better off to deal in reality. We're much better off to deal in truth, especially as Christians. Of all people, Christians should value truth. I'm particularly saddened that a lot of Christians are the ones who are falling for these lies and for conspiracy theories that they buy into. You remember what our Lord told us in John chapter 8, verse 32, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. This is why I'm not opposed to science, right? People who are anti-science. Science should be about figuring out the truth. The truth is good. We should long for truth. Truth is the gospel and everything that flows from it. And we shouldn't fear that. We should lean into that. I was glad to see a statement from the National Association of Evangelicals. I've signed on to some of their statements and they condemned the attack on the Capitol last Wednesday. And at the end of the statement, the signers said, evangelicals are people who are committed to truth and who should reject untruths. Here's the problem. We don't really want to know the truth. Not really. You know, we've grown to prefer our alternate realities that we've invested our lives into. We've bought into some of these lies. We've all really done this in one way, shape, or form. We've shielded ourselves with falsehoods to protect us from the harsh reality of the actual truth. We'd rather engage and, and look at the pretty lies of this world instead of the harsh truth of what's actually going on around us. This is much deeper than politics, isn't it? This is about our human nature. This is about God. This is about us. You know, Isaiah is calling us, as all the biblical prophets do, to courageously open our eyes to the reality around us. He's calling us to know the truth because the truth will set us free. You know, no matter how difficult living in reality is, it's always preferable to living in the lies because we know where that ends up, right? When you live in the lies, bad things happen. Destruction, deception, we've seen that, violence. We're gonna see over the next few weeks in Isaiah chapter one, the truth, the reality of our anthropology, of who we as humans are. Isaiah's gonna show us who humans are deep down, and I'll give you a disclaimer, it's not pretty. You know, we, this message is very countercultural. We're, we're taught as young kids that self-esteem is what's most important. So we, we tell things to our kids like, everyone's a winner. <laughs> we say things to our kids like, everything you do is remarkable. We say things to our kids like, you can do anything you want in life. Well, really? Is that true? We get books like, I'm okay, you're okay. We read things like, the kids are just all right because it makes us feel good, but 
Those things aren't exactly true, are they? But no one wants to be told that they're wrong. I hate being told that I'm wrong. Just ask my wife, she'll tell you. I don't like to be told that I'm wrong. No one especially wants to be told that they're broken or that they're flawed deep down, that there's something inherently wrong with us that makes us feel guilty and it makes us feel bad. I don't want to feel bad. Paul Turnier, the, the Swiss psychiatrist, said a diffuse and vague guilt feeling kills the personality, but the conviction of sin gives life to it. An acute sense of sin is not something to fear. It's not something to resent. It's actually life-giving if we allow that conviction to lead to repentance, if we have the courage to let the Spirit convict us and then let Christ save us. The answer to our fundamental problem of who we are as humans isn't more self-esteem, it's more Christ-esteem. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. It's, it's allowing Christ to come in and do what only he can do. Think about it. What if, what if God sees that our, our hedge of self-protection is really self-imprisonment? What if he wants to talk to us about it because he has a way out? What if he's lovingly confronting us with these truths in Isaiah chapter 1 that are so embarrassing that they just might save us? Ray Ortland says, Conviction of sin is the merciful God declaring war on the false peace we settle for. Conviction of sin is our escape from malaise to joy. Conviction of sin is our escape from attending church to worship. <laughs> Conviction of sin is our escape from faking it to authenticity. I love that. Here in Isaiah chapter 1, God's showing us the truth about ourselves. Again, the, the philosopher Charles Taylor, super influential guy in like academic circles, right? He wrote this huge book called Our Secular Age, and he argues that people in Western cultures are pretty much all scrambling to cultivate this identity that he calls a buffered self, a, a sense of who we are that's kind of surrounded by this persona that we've created for ourselves that includes our clothes and what our car is like and what our house is like and even our, our family, our job, our social media presence for those of you that do that kind of thing and so on. But here's the thing, if we let those things insulate us, buffer us against the thing that actually matters most, they will be the death of us because they are not life-giving. Not ultimately. We got to live in reality. John Calvin said that in order to make meaningful contact with reality, we got to know two things. We got to know God and we got to know ourselves. Those two things. So Isaiah begins his collection of prophecy with what we most urgently need. A look at who the triune God is and a look at who we are in light of that. 
He begins his prophecy with this important concept that's so important, we're going to spend the next two weeks in chapter one making sure we understand this foundational concept of who God is and who we are. And today we're going to see how our sin breaks things. We're going to have three points here that show how our sin just causes havoc. What is it that's broken by sin? Well, first off, we're going to see in this text that God's heart The very heart of God is broken by our sin. Look at verse 2 again. Hear, O O heavens, and give give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. You know, I think most people, when they think of God, they still think of like some big guy on a throne up in the clouds with a big beard and he's just got lightning bolts and he's just waiting for us to mess up so he can zap us. That's, that's not who God is. That's like Zeus or some other made up God. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God we worship. That's not the triune God of the universe of all creation. That's nothing what he's like. Our God is a good, good father. And I know a lot of you had really terrible earthly fathers, and I'm so sorry for the pain that you've endured because of that. And I know all of you have had less than perfect fathers, because I'm one of them, and it's incredibly difficult to be a flawed human and to be a father at the same time. But our God, I mean, and some of you had great fathers. Some of you had awesome dads that you loved dearly, and that's great. I had a great dad. But no matter how awesome your dad was, it, it, it falls infinitely short of the kind of father that God is to us, his children. He is the perfect father to his children, and he loves us as a good father. Some of you don't grasp that concept. I know a lot of you as a parent here have experienced the pain of having a grown child, an adult child, walk away from the faith. I've prayed with many of you about that and the grief that it brings you. And here's the thing. If you, as a less than perfect parent, feel the pain of a child who has engaged in this self-destructive, wanton, reckless behavior that has led them away from the Lord and into harm that they're living into, if you experience that pain, how much more does our Father in heaven feel it over his children. You may say, okay, yeah, those people are bad that walk away from the Lord. That's not me, though. I'm here in church. I'm watching church on TV like I always do. I'm I'm a good person. I'm not in rebellion against God. You know, life is hard, and I'm doing the best I can. I give money every now and then to the church, and, you know, I try to honor God. What more does he want from me? What does God expect of me? I'm doing the best I can. Let's just examine that inclination for a second. If that thought pops into your head when you read about God's children in rebellion, then let me posit this. You are proving God's point. You are proving God's point. That very attitude is itself an act of rebellion, isn't it? A refusal to submit to a loving God. Ray Ortland again says, whenever we resist God's claims upon us and make peace with our mediocrity, I love that, we are rebelling against our Father, which is to say we live often 
in open defiance against God. It's true, isn't it? We don't want to think of ourselves as being opposed to God. We like to think of ourselves as good people because it makes us feel good about ourselves. And our enemy would love to keep us that way, satisfied with a mediocre experience of God and not on fire for him, not abandoned to him, but in that kind of rut that may or may not exhibit signs of true conversion or not. You know, that is so true that there are plenty of religious people who've never actually been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. They've never been born again. They've never been converted, actually. And that's especially true here in the Bible Belt. We're lulled to sleep by a mediocre faith. And we need to be awakened to a prophetic reality. And that reality is that the heart of God is broken by our turning away from him and choosing our own path instead. Listen to the pain in his voice in verse 3. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people don't understand. These dumb farm animals, that's a bad word, Isaiah, don't use that word. These dumb farm animals, they, they know their master's voice, but my own children who I have strength, I have strongly redeemed them with my right hand, they don't know me. That's pain in the father's heart. If only they knew how much I loved them. If only they would stop resenting me as some God who's waiting to zap them and thinking of me as some petty, vengeful God and come to understand that I am a good, good father to them and I love them dearly. The fact that God uses the name Israel in that verse shows his covenant faithfulness to his children. He knows their name. That's the covenant name that he gave to them. And he longs for them to come home so he can truly bless them. The second thing that gets broken by our sin, first God's own heart and now our own strength. Our sins cuts us off from our source of true strength from the living God. Look at verse four. This is Isaiah talking now. It was God. Now Isaiah's talking. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. He's not judging there. He's lamenting. They have forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. And they are utterly estranged, cut off removed from the household of the Lord. Again, we don't think of ourselves as people who are forsaken, people who have forsaken God, people who are estranged from him, but he's speaking to God's chosen people. These are religious people. They dwell in God's promised land. They go to the temple. They make their sacrifices and their pilgrimages to Jerusalem during the four festival seasons in keeping with the law. I can picture people in Isaiah's day hearing this message and saying, hey, wait a minute, I dragged the whole family all the way up from, you know, Galilee. We went up to, to, to Jerusalem for Passover last spring, and, you know, it cost me a fortune. What do you mean I'm cut off from the Lord? I'm doing the best I can here. It's not what it's about, is it? It's not about going through the motions. We don't forsake God, do we? Maybe we do. We don't resent God, do we? Maybe we do. 
What Isaiah is saying is that every time we treat God like a last resort, instead of the fount of every blessing, we are forsaking him and his goodness and his grace. Despising God is simply not appreciating him for who he is. It's not loving him for who he is. It's not worshiping him for who he is. It's what happens when we value other things in this life at a premium and we put God in the bargain bin. It's what happens when we tend to think of these, you know, bad sins and bad people, you know, murderers, terrorists, these, these bad things that separate people from God. We tend to think of those as the things that cut people off from God. But according to Isaiah, simply not appreciating God for being God cuts us off and estranges us from the Lord. Isaiah uses two images here to help us see how blind we are to this truth. The first one is a man who's been beaten severely but doesn't feel his own wounds enough to get help. Look at verse 5. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they're not pressed out, gross, or bound up, or softened with oil. It's a really sad image. This poor guy's been so clobbered, there's not an inch on his body left that's not bruised or bleeding. But apparently he doesn't learn his lesson because he keeps going back for more. He's not a victim, is he? He's suffering from his own stubbornness his own refusal to repent, his own uh, self-destructive behavior, and yet he despises the only one who can help. Later in Isaiah 61, we'll see how the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, was sent to bind up the brokenhearted. That's what we need as a healer. Some of us need to start healing today. The other image that he uses here is a country that's been invaded and destroyed. Look at verse 7. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire in your very presence. Foreigners devour your land. It's desolate. It's overthrown by foreigners, pagans. And the daughter of Zion's left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Contrast that image with the image of the promised land. Remember the sermon I preached a few weeks ago in Numbers? Of course you do. Uh, it said that when they went to the promised land, the spies went into the land, and it was a land flowing with milk and honey. They brought back a single cluster of grapes so big it took two men to carry it on a pole between them. Compare that to this. This is, Israel's been reduced to a shack. A hut in the middle of a field has been picked over by pagan invading hordes. That's not what God's plan was for his people. Sin breaks our strength because apart from God, we're powerless. Keep going. We'll see in the final verse that there's one thing that remains unbroken by sin. The last thing, point number three, is the thing that has not been broken by sin is God's grace. Look at verse 9. If the Lord, every time it's underlined, that means it's Yahweh, the name of God. The Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors. We should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. 
If it wasn't for the Lord, we'd have been wiped off the face of the earth a long time ago, just like the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were. How does the church survive? Is it through clever planning? Is it through charismatic preachers who get everybody fired up? Is it through toe-tapping music? No, the church survives because God saves sinners. The church survives because of God's grace alone. Apart from his preserving grace, we wouldn't be here today. Here we see that God's grace remains unbroken. Our good father has good plans for us. He has complete power and authority over us like a powerful father does. He could wound us and he could heal us and he chooses to heal us. Our good father loves us. Will we come to our senses and stop running away from him today and come home into his open, loving arms? I understand that you may be hurting here today. You may be like that guy that had been clobbered. Every inch of your body may be hurting physically, emotionally, socially, mentally. I don't know. But there's good news for those who are wounded. Jesus was wounded too. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Our wounds are healed by his wounds. If you're here today and you're hurting, come to the Lord who can heal, because no one else can. Isaiah, Isaiah wants us to be convicted by our sins for our own good. Healing begins when we see how we've despised and forsaken the good Father. And once we get to that point, all the other sins can be addressed. Will you allow the great physician, the good Father, to come into your heart today? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you that as a good father, you've chosen to heal us, to forgive us, to show us grace and mercy when we didn't deserve it. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand that apart from you, we can do nothing. That apart from the, the, the vine, the branches are dead. God, help us to remain in you. Help us to abandon ourselves to you. Help us to give up this spinning our wheels in our own strength, trying to get ahead in this life and to understand the only way to flourish and thrive is only by your providential grace. We thank you for preserving Woodmont Baptist Church for almost 80 years on this corner. We pray for 80 more years that are even more productive for your kingdom, O oh Lord, that we would be able to abandon ourselves to you and to your purposes knowing the truth that left to our own devices, we will fail miserably. But with your Holy Spirit leading us, by your power, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Lord, I pray that you would convict our hearts of how we have chosen other things over you, how we have rejected you in favor of worldly temporal things that will let us down and will ultimately fade away. God, we pray, as the old hymn says, that, that the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. We love you. We pray these things in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to have a time of response. We're going to sing, only trust him. What is it that you've been trusting in? 
Have you made an idol of your job? Have you made an idol of your family? Have you made an idol of your spouse, your boyfriend, girlfriend? Maybe you've made an idol of your identity that you've carefully cultivated through uh, your persona. Maybe you're living lies that you know it's time to to let those walls come crumbling down and allow God to free you from the self-imprisonment that you've been living in all this time. Are you ready to courageously step into the light of God's glory and grace? It'll cost you everything, but it's the only way to live, the best way to live, no matter what. Will you sing this with all your heart today? And I would ask you too, if you want to join this church and become a part of what God's doing, I'm going to be down here to receive you. If you just want to pray with somebody and wear a mask and kind of try to distance, then I'll be here to talk with you and pray with you as well. Whatever it is, maybe you just want to come to the altar today. Maybe you just need to come kneel at the altar and bring what's on your heart to the Lord. Uh, you can do that and space out six feet apart. That'd be great. Whatever it is you need to do during this time, let's sing this song from our hearts. Only trust him. Let's stand and sing a hymn of response.